This subject of the problem of suffering, the problem of evil in the world, this is probably the most uh, persistent of the challenges to not only the existence of God, but to biblical Christianity. People reject God and reject the Bible because there is suffering in the world. And the question goes something like this, that's the title of the handout that you have, how could a loving God, and then you can fill it in, how could a loving God allow the Holocaust to happen? How could a loving God allow uh, my child to die? How could a loving God uh, allow the, the starvation that takes place around the world? If God, if God exists and he is good, how could these things be happening? This is the hardest question for some to answer. And there are two components, two aspects to it. Last week, we laid a doctrinal foundation that is for mature, more uh, uh, seasoned Christians, more mature believers. But there are two types. If you look at your handout, at the top of the handout, it says two types of questions and answers to this question, two parts to it. The first is intellectual. The intellectual problem of evil concerns how to give a rational explanation of how God and evil can coexist. That's the intellectual problem, the intellectual answer. But we need to understand something. So if you're here this morning and you're going through something devastating, could be cancer, could be the loss of a child, there's so many different things that you could be going through. The intellectual answer is not going to be a whole lot of help for you. And we as Christians, when we're dealing with this subject, when someone asks us this question, how could a loving God allow this to happen? We need to, we need to follow that up before we give an answer with this question. Are you going through something difficult right now? Are you asking that question because you're hurting? Because we're going to give a different answer to that person than the one who is asking the intellectual question. No, I just don't think logically that it can, that, that there can be a God if there is suffering in the world. Do you all understand that those are two different conversations? Right? It can be cold comfort to someone when you start debating with them. You know, someone could say, I went to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, I've got bad headaches and it can either be migraines or I might have a brain tumor. Well, you can tell that person, well, you know, 98% of the people, uh, studies have been shown that 98.9% of the people who have headaches don't have brain tumors, that it is something more akin to. Do you think that's the answer that that person needs at that moment? Well, we like to give those, well, you might not. I like to give those kinds of answers too. You, you know, the robot answer, it's not helpful when the person is hurting. Does that make sense? And yet we have to know what the truth is on these things. So I'm going to try and answer both of, well, here, the second, look at the second one. Letter B, emotional. Now let me just step back. Intellectual and emotional. The last thing someone needs to hear, oh, you're not asking an intellectual question, you're asking an emotional question. You're more emotional. That's really going to help people if you do that, right? No, but, but understand that one is, is out of the feelings and out of the pain, and one is out of the intellect. That's, that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about. So emotional. The emotional problem of evil concerns how to dissolve people's emotional dislike of a God who would permit suffering. We're talking about two different conversations. So this logical problem of evil, number two, William Lane Craig, um, and let me just make a little disclaimer 
I hate it that I always have to make disclaimers. He's one of the most brilliant men you'll ever hear. What he has put together on this video I'm going to show you is fantastic. His stuff on the creation of the world and on Adam and all of that, he says that Adam was some kind of prehistoric man some 750 million or billion years ago. or It's just insane. So I have to give that disclaimer. His basic apologetic stuff, that's the defense of Christianity and of God, is fantastic. And I'm going to show you a video. Now, on this video, he gives an answer to this question, the logical problem of evil. And what I have on your handout, look at your handout, Roman Roman numeral number two, the logical problem of evil, and then the statement of the problem. What I have done, this video is only four or five minutes long. And he goes through, the video goes through a lot of information very quickly. All right, so you're going to have the video. You can read it there. I have all of the information printed out for you here. Because what's funny is I can look out there. Some of you are falling asleep already. And I don't blame you. I'm tired too. But this is going to be a, a genuine mental exercise for you today to wrestle with these problems. And here's the thing. So young people. I didn't come in and give you my speech before church today. Here's the problem. You, some of you need this right now. Some of you don't need it. All of you will. And all of us in this room right now, life could be great. For, for Laura and I right now, life is amazing. Jacob and Lydia are out of the house. It's awesome. Life is, life is great for us right now. Um, but I know that there will be trouble. Down the road. I know it's coming. So please plug in here and get this because I think this this information that you're going to get today, you're going to need it. And if you don't need it, someone you know will need it and you'll wish that you had it. That's why I took the time to make the handout and that's why we've presented this video. So guys, go ahead and run this video and you can watch it on the video. You can look at your handout and uh, I'll be back with you momentarily. We are all well aware of the suffering and evil in the world. Horrific suffering. Unspeakable evil. How then can anyone believe in the existence of an all-loving, all-powerful God? And if God does exist, why would anyone want to worship Him? Epicurus framed the logical problem of suffering and evil like this. If God is willing to prevent evil but not able, then he's not all-powerful. If he is able to prevent evil but not willing, he is not good. But if he is both willing and able, how can evil exist? And if he is neither able nor willing, then why call him God? In other words, It's logically impossible for God and suffering to both exist. But we know full well that suffering exists. Therefore, God does not. Is this a good argument? Let's look at it more closely. Are these two statements logically inconsistent? No. Here is an example of two logical inconsistent statements. David can't be both married and a bachelor. But there is no explicit contradiction between these two statements. 
So there must be hidden assumptions behind this argument that would bring out the alleged contradiction. Here they are. If God is all-powerful, he can create any world he wants. And if God is all-loving, he prefers a world without suffering. So, if an all-powerful, all-loving God exists, it follows that suffering does not exist. Since suffering obviously does exist, the atheist concludes that God must not exist. But are the atheist's two hidden assumptions necessarily true? Consider the first assumption. Can God create any world he wants? What if he wants a world populated by people who have free will? It's logically impossible for God to force someone to freely choose to do good. Forcing free choices is like making a square circle. It's not logically possible. It's not that God lacks the power to perform the task. It's that the supposed task itself is just nonsense. So, it may not be feasible to create a world populated by people who always freely choose to do what is morally good. So the first assumption is not necessarily true. Therefore, the argument fails. And what about the second assumption? Is it necessarily true that God would prefer a world without suffering? How could we possibly know this? We all know of cases where we permit suffering in order to bring about a greater good. If it's even possible that God allows suffering in order to achieve a greater good, then we cannot say this assumption is necessarily true. For the logical problem of suffering to succeed, the atheist would have to show that it's logically impossible that free will exists and that it's logically impossible that God has good reasons for permitting suffering. This burden of proof is too heavy to bear. It's quite possible that God and suffering both exist. This is why philosophers, even atheist philosophers, have given up on the logical problem of evil. We can concede that the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another. Some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of the theistic God. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. It's now acknowledged on almost all sides that the logical argument is bankrupt. But this is hardly the end of the discussion. We still need to explore the probability version of the problem of evil. We're going to look at that probability problem of evil in the evening service. And I hope that you all will take the time to come back tonight. We really need to flesh this out, and there's not enough time in one session to cover it all. So that you, I hope that you will be back at 5 o'clock for that. So let's look at this. And wasn't that video well done? Now let me ask you something. Be honest. How many of you is a little too fast for you to comprehend it? Would you raise your hand? Yeah. But how do you think through those deep things in a quick setting like that? But this is the world that we live in. That's a very effective way to communicate to people. So let's go through this a little bit more slowly, and then I want to also move to a second subject. But let's look at the, go to Roman numeral number two. The logical problem of evil. 
Letter A, the statement of the problem. So Epicurus, he's the founder of the Epicure. You've heard of the Epicureans. There are Epicurean clubs. Epicurus is the one who founded that school of philosophy. But he was obviously an atheist. He said, if God is willing to prevent evil but not able, then he is not all-powerful. If he is able to prevent evil but not willing, then he is not good. If he is both willing and able, how can evil exist? If he is neither able nor willing, why call him God? All right? So, can you tell that there are assumptions behind that? So, this first, uh, under letter A, uh, the, the small letter A, if God is willing to prevent evil but not able, then he is not all-powerful. Well, the assumption is, that the, the question in the assumption, or the, the assumption in the question is that he's not able to stop evil. Well, God is certainly able to stop evil. So you see there's a false assumption. There's a false assumption. Let's go down to number two there. This is considered the logical problem of evil, and which restated is, it is logically impossible for God and evil to both exist. Well, for us, for believers, and uh, there may be some here, and you're, you're wrestling with this, but I'm going to use this language because the majority of the folks in here uh, would agree with this. We all agree that God exists. Is that right? And how many of you agree that evil exists? I mean, look at this front row. <laughs> Just that purple suit is enough to understand that evil exists. Actually, I like it. I think it's cool. Um, I wish I could pull it off. So the, the, we understand that this is not... The reality of those two existing is not a problem for a Christian. Reconciling them might be a, a difficult question for a Christian to answer. Is that fair? All right, and that's why we are covering this. All right, so letter A there. If God exists, then evil cannot exist. Um, letter B, if evil exists, then God cannot exist. Since evil exists, it follows that God does not exist. Is this logically a logically coherent example of a logically, I'm sorry, number three. Is this logically coherent? Here's an example of a logically incoherent statement. David is married and David is also a bachelor. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's a contradictory statement. By claiming that God exists and evil exists, and making that a contradiction, you're creating something that is not uh, innately contradictory, right? There is an assumption there. So here's the answer, letter B. The problem with this argument is that there is no reason to think that God and evil are logically incompatible. There is no explicit contradiction between them. If the atheist means there is some implicit contradiction between God and evil, then he must be assuming some hidden premises which bring out this implicit contradiction. What are those hidden assumptions? What are they believing? What, what glasses are they wearing? What are their presuppositions? What are they presupposing? All right. Well, in, in their assumption, if, an all-powerful God exists, and suffering exists. If God is all-powerful, he can create any world he wants. I want to stop and talk about that for a minute. God can create any world that he wants. This is a problem 
that we have in our thinking. God doesn't have a problem with this. So a good example of a, a question uh, that would illustrate this, this conundrum is, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? All right, has anyone ever heard that? Well, do you know what the answer is? No. Why? Because it's an absurd question. It's absurd. God, that, that would be logically, God is the epitome of logic. God is the epitome of truth. He does nothing that is illogical. All right? So Spock is not God. But Spock couldn't stand, that's not logical, right? He, he, he wouldn't do it. That's my favorite Star Wars character, Jacob, is Spock. So, what's that? I love messing with uh, nerds. Um, so, when we say that God, God could have created a world without sin. God could have done that. Well, what we're doing is we are assuming, think, think through this with me. We're assuming a higher moral capacity than God has. We're assuming that we have a higher understanding of what is good. I heard someone use this illustration that um, they ended up with a cat because somehow they broke this cat's leg. So it cost them $1,000 to care for this cat because they didn't want to see the cat suffer. Now, if I brought a cat up here and broke the cat's leg, some of you would love that. Most, how many of you would not like it for me to do that? You would not like for me to do that, right? Laura would like for me to do that. She hates cats. She's, she's y'all see her face over here? Yes. So why do we not do that? Because it's wrong to cause suffering to a creature. It's wrong to do that. Morally wrong. But is there a difference between, if, if you had to make a choice between breaking uh, Ethan's leg or a cat's leg, and you had to choose one of them, well, you would certainly choose the cat, right? Why? Because a cat's suffering, because of its limited understanding, that's, that's on a different level than the suffering of a human being. Does that make sense? You can understand more. That's why when a baby is teething or a baby hurts, you can't reason with that baby. You try to find a way to alleviate the pain and comfort the pain. But explaining to the baby what's going on is not going to help at all. Many of us, when you've got a problem, you go to the doctor and you find out you really do have a problem, that, the, that there's a name for it, whatever it is, right? Just finding out what your problem is, that's a little bit of a relief, isn't it? Why? Because you have a higher level of understanding than that baby has. Now, let's say that now your child is five years old and they've got a, a, a bad tooth and that tooth has to be removed. Well, you can explain that to the child. The child is still not going to be excited about you removing the tooth like we saw in the, in the video, right? 
That, that's true. But you're going to remove the tooth because, honestly, the child could die from an infection if you don't care for that. What's going on? You have a higher level of understanding, of intellectual capacity to understand the suffering than the child does. Isn't that right? You understand that God is different than you. That God's ways are not your ways, neither are his thoughts your thoughts. Right? And God has a higher level of understanding than we do. Would you all agree with that? This idea that God could create a world without suffering, but also create a world where man has a free choice, a free will. It's not logically provable that that's the case. So let's let's look at our handout. So, letter B. Look at number two. What are the hidden assumptions? An all-powerful God exists. Suffering exists. If God is all-powerful, he can create any world he wants. Now, Now, remember, what we're saying is, well, he can create any world he wants, but the world you want him to create might not be possible. Can God make a rock so big he can't move it? That's absurd. You understand what I'm saying here? That's the point there. Letter D. If God is all-loving, he prefers a world without suffering. That's an assumption. If God is all-loving, he prefers a world without suffering. Let me just give you a small, trivial example of how that's a false understanding. Anyone who has ever worked out with weights in order to build muscle knows that when that that a workout that doesn't cause pain is worthless. Right? And as a matter of fact, when when you've worked out as much as I have to get to this level of marshmallow. No, people that really work out, they get to the place where it's a good it's a good pain they actually they that's they recognize that it's a profitable thing you also recognize when you've gone too hard and now you can't work out for a while because you damaged yourself you hurt yourself all right so what is that that's demonstrating that suffering can cause good so the idea that suffering is always evil that, that that's not logically coherent all right so let's let's keep going Letter D, if God is all-loving, he prefers a world without suffering. That's not, um, that, that argument has not been established, all right? Letter E, so it follows that if an all-powerful God exists, suffering does not exist. Since suffering obviously exists, the atheist concludes God must not exist. But, number three, are the atheist's two hidden assumptions true? Consider the first assumption. Can God create any world he wants? This is so good right here. What if God wants a world populated by people who have a free will? Now, let's stop here. Who would have an argument with, or who would have a problem with that statement? Calvinists. 
right? So I, I could have grabbed a little video that shows James White saying that um, when a, a, a child is assaulted, that has to be God's will, otherwise the suffering would have no purpose. He says the idea of purposeless suffering doesn't make sense. Well, yes, it does. In a fallen world, of course it makes sense. Of course it does. What makes more sense, that God gave us free will and men do bad things, or that God created man to do bad things and also created the, the evil act? That doesn't make any sense at all, so let's just throw that out. If you're here and you've heard some of those arguments from a Calvinist, um, we do not agree with those arguments, okay? And maybe we can do another message on that subject and do a whole topic on that, but not this morning. So, we're, we're looking at our under number three there. Can God create any world he wants? What if God wants a world populated by people who have free will? Let her see. This is so important. It is logically impossible for God to force someone to freely choose to do good. You can't force someone to choose good. If you're forcing them, then they are not choosing. Does that make sense? That's like we have all this ballot, uh, all these ballot problems. So you've got these people will go and they will vote. They'll, they'll go in person to vote and they find out that they already voted. Someone cast a mail-in vote for them. So what happened? Someone forced them to vote for someone against their will. That should not be allowed in a just society. Is that right? Why? You can't force someone to do something. So you have these um, totalitarian cultures where the dictator wins their election by 99.8% or whatever. Right? 99.8% of people don't agree on nothing. Right? So that's not a free election. Is that right? Why? So we understand freedom and free will and free choice. So let's look at that statement again. Letter C, it is logically impossible for God to force someone to freely choose to do good. Letter D, forcing free choices is like making a square circle. It is not logically possible. You say, wait a minute, you can force people to choose. We do that to our kids all the time. Do you want green beans or broccoli? Well, you're eating one of them. You're forcing a choice, right? You're forcing a choice. Why? Because the child, the goober, doesn't have free will. In that moment, they're going to eat it whether they like it or not. Right? You, you, you eat it and you will like it. <laughs> right? that's, that's what we're doing. The, you see how that saying, well, you're forcing a choice. That is the point of the argument. If you're forcing, then it's not choice. And let me just say this as an aside. I'll tell you the people that are the epitome of evil in the world. These are the ones that are in front of you in the buffet line asking the three-year-old what they want. There's a place for these people. Okay. Letter E. <laughs> All the mercy people just plugged, unplugged right there. Letter E. It is not that God lacks the power to perform the task. It is that the supposed task itself is nonsense. All right? And this is what happens. I have had people 
bring me arguments, atheists, you know, a young person that thinks they're an atheist, and they'll get a list of arguments from the internet. So they've got them on their phone. And they'll start asking the question as if, got you now, you never thought of this, did you? And it's so fun to finish the question for them. Because as you can see with Epicurus, Epicurus asked that question 350 B.C. So this, this knucklehead with the phone is only about, what, 2,500 years late with his great idea. Right? Are you with me? That being said, we need to have answers for these things. And if it's an absurdity, we need to acknowledge the absurdity of the question rather than try and come up with some kind of an answer for it. It's a foolish question. All right. So, letter G. It may not be feasible to create a world populated by people who always choose to do what is morally good. Think about that. It might not even be possible. Why didn't God do this? That might not even be a a logical possibility for people to always choose good. How is God going to handle this in eternity? I don't have any idea. Maybe that's something that I can learn and that's a question that I need to figure out. But right now, this is not the world that, that we have. All right? Number four. So the first assumption, if God is all-powerful, he can create any world he wants, is not necessarily true. Therefore, the argument fails. What about the second assumption? If God is all-loving, he prefers a world without suffering. Well, the simple answer is, how could we possibly know this? We all know of cases where we permit suffering in order to bring about a greater good. If it is even possible that God allows suffering to achieve a greater good, then we cannot say that this assumption is necessarily true. Now, let me just interject something right here. There is a a greater good philosophy. And this is where we have to become very, be very careful. Just because we use this phrase that there is a greater good that God is accomplishing, that always be be wary of this greater good philosophy. So I have to, this for example, I have to stop Ty's free speech in order to help all of you for the greater good. How many of you know that's the world we live in right now? Right? So let's always be careful with this greater good argument. But because God is greater and God is good, what he does is the greater good. Okay? You're not God. Neither am I. Neither is the government. All right. Let her see. Therefore, the logical problem of evil fails to prove any inconsistency between God and evil. All right, so now I want to talk about the emotional problem of evil. So if you're here and you're, you, you've got something going on in your life and, and you have the genuine question, if God loves me, how is this going on? And here are the answers that, that, that we have heard. Okay, that either God does not exist. If there's evil and so so if I'm suffering, then God must not exist or God does exist, but he's not good. So Christopher Hitchens wrote a book, God is not great. If God does exist, I'll spit in his face because of the suffering. So that's one reaction to it. If there is a God and there is suffering, then God is not good. There's another answer that people give. So if there is a God 
and there is suffering, and God is powerful enough to do something about it, he must not care. So remember, the, we're, we're told that some of the founders of our country were deists. That is, that God created the world and then just took his hands off it and let it go. That's, that's the indifferent God. That God is indifferent to our suffering, that he doesn't care. Well, let's see what the Bible says about that. Let's see if we can answer that. Now, let me just, is that, are those legitimate questions? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's see what the Bible says. So here's the statement of the problem. Letter A. How could a loving God allow evil to exist? They just don't like a God who would permit them or others to suffer, and therefore they want nothing to do with him. This results in either rejection of God or outright atheism. I don't want to worship a God like that. If they reject atheism, they can still reject God, saying, yes, I believe that there is a God, but I don't want him. Letter B. Two important realities. Would you all mark this? Don't, don't miss this. This is the only part of my, my message today that you remember. This might be the most helpful part. Number one. For most people, personal suffering is not alleviated by discussions of logic, right? Have you ever been really mad and somebody said, calm down? Does that help? Men, do you have any husbands? If you're a husband, raise your hand. Your wife's mad at you, and you've told her to calm down. How many of you have ever actually done that? Would you raise your hand? You've, you've tried that. Jim's smarter than the rest of us. He didn't. How many of you found out it didn't work? Would you raise your hand? Okay, so this is where when you're in a situation, somebody's really suffering, it's not alleviated by discussions of logic. That's number one. Number two, hey, oh, I don't want to jump up and down. This is left out of this conversation so often. Look, neither though is suffering alleviated by disbelief in God. So if you say, how could a loving God, I, I don't believe in him, if that's what this is going to happen to me, does your suffering then ease? No, that's not an answer. That's a reaction, right? That's not an answer. It's a reaction. And sometimes our reactions are bad, right? So, Andy works on electrical stuff. And if you haven't shut down the box or whatever, and I don't even know what the words are. And so you reach in, and there's a sharp thing, and so you, you jerk away from it because you, you, you got hurt. You react. And the reaction causes you to put your hand into whatever it is that's conducting the electricity. That reaction takes you into a much worse a worser place, right? Is, is, is that, are those the words that I use the right words for electricity? No, not even close. Please don't call me to work on your electrical stuff. But y'all get the point. You can react. You're driving down the road, right? And a dog runs in front of your car and to avoid the car, you run into a bunch of kids walking to school. The reaction caused something worse, right? That's what, look, again, 
Neither, though, is suffering alleviated by disbelief in God. The reaction to the pain, reacting wrongly, can cause something worse than the pain. An eternity without God. All right, letter C. Let's get the answer from Scripture. The answer from Scripture. God is not indifferent to our suffering. God is not indifferent to our suffering. We're not going to take the time to look these verses up in our Bible. If you're a guest with us, we're normally all over our Bibles. I've printed the verses for time. I've printed them for you on the page in front of you. So let's look at this. The answer from Scripture, God is not indifferent to our suffering. Here's a general truth. The Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, acknowledges the reality of suffering in the world. Right? So it's acknowledged. It is not ignored. Job 14.1, man that is born of a woman, look, that's all of us, right? Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Has a truer statement ever been made? And think about this, that's everyone. That's every person that's ever been born because the fall happened, the fall happened before there were children. Every person born. All right, look at the next. Here's what Christ said. But I say unto you, love your enemies. This is from Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Say, Pastor, what does that have to do with our subject? The Bible is acknowledging that there are just and unjust, and that just and unjust alike get the benefits of God's creation. Well, that doesn't seem fair, does it? Well, if God is a just God, it will all be taken care of. All right, look at, look at our next passage, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Here's the Apostle Paul. So we've looked at Old Testament. We've looked at during the time of Christ, before the, the death of Christ. Now, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, under the, the Apostle Paul. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. So th- that's people that commit sexual sin. Yet, not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. In other words, as in church, at the Lord's Supper, we're not supposed to have people that are openly living in that behavior. We stop that from happening. The Bible says, with such an one, know not to eat. That's this same passage. All right? But he says, I'm not saying you can never eat with someone like that. Because, and, and this is what it says in the Greek, then you could never go to a family reunion. <laughs> that's not what it says in the Greek, but that's, that's just the, the, the premise of it. You would, how can you be with people that aren't sinners? You have to leave this world because if you are in this world, you are going to be with sinners. So what are we saying? God is not ignorant of the evil or of the suffering or of the injustice. God is not ignorant of that. It is all acknowledged in Scripture. What about when we go through it? 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. We all go through something. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. All of us, if you're a believer, you're going to go through trouble. 
Even unbelievers are going to go through trouble. It doesn't matter. That's the human condition. Man that's born of woman, his days are few, and they're full of trouble. That's the understanding of Scripture. All right? Number two. The accusation of indifference, that is, yes, there's a God, but he doesn't care about our suffering. The accusation of indifference is destroyed by one fact. Jesus entered this world in human form to suffer with us and for us. So the first part of my message was from the the philosopher, William Lane Craig. The second half of my message is from the pastor, Jim Alter. What? How has God shown me from the Bible that he cares about us? How can I show you from the Bible as your pastor? How does God care for you? Let's read that statement again. Number two, the accusation of indifference is destroyed by one fact. Jesus entered this world in human form to suffer with us and for us. Look at what Hebrews 2.14 says on your handout through 18. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood... This is talking about Christ. He also himself likewise took part of the same, what? Flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Why won't God do something about the evil and suffering in the world? He did. He did. What's the next step? And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I told Laura this this past week. I was talking with Jerry Seiler, or no, no, with Roger Green. He used to pastor Grace Baptist in Middletown. And we were talking about funerals and sadness. And I, I told him, I said, man, I don't want my funeral to be sad. I want it to be a celebration. Brother Green looked at me and said, I'm going to hire a juggler. <laughs> we had a lady in our church in Oklahoma, Mrs. Monette. And there's an old uh, Southern Gospel song. Um, I wish I knew the words. It, it's something like, uh, I'm going to let the glory roll when the roll is called in glory. She said, I'm going to get beside, the song says, I'm going to get beside myself when I get beside the king that day. I'm going to have the time of my life when the time of my life is over. I'm going to get carried away when I get carried away. She had our, the men's group from our church sing that at her funeral. He's destroyed death. Man, it's horrible when a, when a lost person dies. There's mourning. There's sadness. It's terribly sad when a young person dies. There is mourning. There is sadness. When you live to a ripe old age and you get to go see Jesus, praise the Lord. I want my funeral. I hope it's not today. But I want my funeral to be a celebration. Why? Because the Bible says that he has, he has destroyed the fear of death. Didn't COVID reveal how faithless Christians are? They were terrified of heaven. Right? Let's, let's look. Let's keep reading in our text. Uh, that's printed on your handout. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels... But he took on him the seed of Abraham. What is the seed of Abraham? He was a man in the lineage of David, Jewish. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Please don't miss this. Okay, what, what book of the Bible are we, are we reading from right now? What is it? Who was the book of Hebrews written to? Hebrews. Understand how important this is. Don't think I'm being flippant here. Who suffered the Holocaust? The Hebrews. Jesus came and was made like his brethren, the Jews, to suffer for them. That's what he did. He suffered with them. Look at our last verse. For in, Keep going in that same section. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, to give, to give relief to them that are tempted. What does that mean for us? Look at the next passage. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched, look, with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like Abby said, we just need, saying we need grace. We must have grace. But look at number three. The accusation that suffering is unjust requires us to believe in a higher justice. Right? Jesus Christ satisfied that higher justice. Look what the Bible says. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So what did Jesus do? The last passage shows us he, he became flesh and blood. He took on flesh and bones. He became a man. He entered into the suffering of his people. He entered into our suffering. He experienced the feeling of our temptations. He, he experienced suffering and death for us, Right? Look at what it says. The next passage, 1 Peter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered, what are those next two words? For us in the flesh. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Why did Jesus die in the flesh for us? To free us from bondage to our flesh. You don't have to live in sin. You don't have to do that. You don't have to cause your own suffering. You don't have to cause suffering for someone else. He has cured that. So, letter D. So the answer to the emotional question cannot be that he doesn't love us. Or he certainly would not have come and suffered for us. The gospel removes the accusation of indifference. Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. Jesus Christ cares about you and your suffering. 
He cares about you. And he cared about you so much that if you were the only person in the world, he would have come and died on that cross for you specifically, individually. What about suffering and evil in the world? But we'll look at that some more tonight. But right now we've been looking at that emotional argument that if God does exist and I'm suffering, he must not care about me. He cared so much about you that he came and suffered. Now remember, remember what we said. This is the last thing I'm going to say and then we're done. We described the suffering of the cat is different than the suffering of the human. And the suffering of the, the, a, a young human, a five-year-old. There's a different understanding of that suffering than, than a mature adult. Right? And we talked about how God has a higher understanding. The higher your understanding, the more you understand suffering and what people are going through. Obviously, God has the ultimate understanding. And yet, he also has the ultimate holiness, the ultimate purity. So when Jesus Christ was on the cross, the statement is made, listen to his suffering. He suffered more on the cross than the cumulative suffering of every human being that has ever lived or ever would live. So imagine someone suffering the pain of three people. How horrible that would be. Jesus experienced the pain of everyone, the suffering of everyone that will ever live. That's what Jesus Christ endured on the cross. Not only that, his understanding of the sin that was coming on him is so much deeper than our understanding of sin. There might be a new believer here and the, like the Bible says in 1 John, they understand, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Someone who's been saved for a long time and knows God, the, the, the closer they get to God, the more real their own sin becomes. And, and it just becomes more and more real. Imagine the God who knows everything. And that's what was put on him, what he experienced for us. So let me just ask you one question and we'll be done. Does Jesus understand your suffering? Does he get it? Does he make light of it? No. No. He loves you. He loves you. If he knows the numbers of the hairs on your head, if he knows that, he knows about your pain. Don't allow your pain to cause you to say no to God. Because there is an ultimate deliverance. When life is over. And he gives you a new body. You can only have that. If you, in your suffering, run to him. Instead of away from him. Trust him as your savior. Lord, thank you for coming and dying on the cross for us. The passage of Scripture says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God.